I'm Adam. And I'm Becca. And welcome to the Neurodivergent Polyamorous Podcast. And today we're going to be talking about how people with neurodivergencies deal with grief and processing grief differently than someone that is more neurotypical. This is a fun topic, isn't it? Well, I mean, not really. But I'm (laughs) attempting to be sarcastic and being autistic and sarcasm are not my best things. So forget. Well, yeah, I guess a podcast really doesn't uh, hold up, you know, to the sarcasm sign. (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) No, but uh, I mean, to be honest, the reason I wanted to do this one now, I mean, I've told you this in private, but my grandmother passed away last week. So while we had intended on doing a completely different topic involving communication styles and neurodivergency in relationships, which we should still do, I thought this would be a little bit more timely because it was on my mind. Well, yeah, it's definitely a fresher topic and I've, you know, we've talked about it already, but I do send my sincere condolences to you and your family. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, yeah, now is a great time. Well, not a great time, but um, it is a good time to talk about this particular topic because, you know, it, it is kind of a fresh thing and we can go through sort of the steps of what you're feeling. Is it weird that I'm using this episode as therapy kind of sort of maybe? I mean, didn't we start this podcast as kind of therapy for us? Kind of, sort of, maybe? Okay, so... You bring up a good point. All right. Um, So, did you have anything to start with, or did you want me to start? Oh, well, let's get you started, um, just so that we can kind of talk about what, what you're going through, and then, like usual, I'll add my two cents in here and there. Yeah, okay, let's do that. So... It's been the weirdest thing. I now, I mean, for our viewers at home or viewers, listeners at home, no one's viewing anything on this. um, My grandmother was a a month shy of 101 years old. So I immediately, I already have the logic in my brain of yes, but Adam, she had a good life. But despite that, like there was that. There's the fact that she had a complicated relationship with my uncle and my mom. And there's the fact that she also taught me a lot about politics and the world and finances and how to be a good civic citizen and all these things. And she generally took pride in me and my cousins. So I'm in a weird place with that. But at the same time, I find it strange that I haven't cried yet. And I've had moments of like melancholy and moments of peace and happiness that she's lived as long as she did and got to have a good life. And it feels like the, the turning of a chapter, if you will. But at the same time, I feel bad that I haven't felt the way I feel like society says I should feel. Okay. But on that kind of frame of reference, we don't generally feel how society tells us we should feel anyway. That's part of our neurodivergencies. Well, and that's the whole reason we're doing a podcast, right? To tell people that it's okay to feel differently than the way society tells you to feel. And I'm good with telling that to everyone else. And I'll post that on TikTok with wild abandon. And yet for some reason, when it comes to me personally, I have a bad time taking my own advice. Well, I mean, that is also perfectly natural. It's we're great at dealing with everybody else's crises, but not our own. Oh God, tell me about it, right? It's, it's like, I can go into like my own dishes 
will sit in the sink if I didn't have a countertop dishwasher would sit in my sink for weeks because I just I have a hard time with dishwashing. If Eric from Katie and Eric's Infinite Quest is listening to this, I feel you, brother. I really do. <laughs> that, but at the same time, if a family member or friend needed my help with doing that, it's like caregiver mode activated. Does that make sense? Yeah, sorry. My train of thought totally derailed. <laughs> we don't have ADHD at all. No. Um, so what I was going to say um, prior, we started talking about dishes and that just, it it threw me for a <laughs> Oh my goodness. I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, just, ooh, I, I don't think it's going to come back. So keep going, keep going. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, no, I, what was I saying now? Oh my God. I could edit this out but this is just so perfect so I'm probably just gonna leave this in oh no (laughs) I I feel bad that we're like we're gonna talk about grief and I'm laughing hysterically the entire no don't feel bad about that because well go on it actually works well in my favor because laughter is how I deal with grief I can understand that because even when I'm anxious or in a situation that makes me nervous or uncomfortable and stuff, I deflect and diffuse it with laughter. Absolutely. And actually, so, so that our listeners are aware, I have a, um, a longstanding history of dealing with grief. I was born into an older family and therefore I lose a lot of family members. Yeah. Um, so one of the kind of many deaths, deaths, Mm, I can't even speak today. Words are hard. Um, They're very hard. But so one of the uh, major deaths in my life was when I was 10 years old and my um, 88 year old grandmother passed away um, and she lived with us. So I I did spend a lot of time with her. And um, during kind of her death, uh, the the aftermath of her death, of course, we had uh, we lived in a small town, but we were also uh, from a big city. So we did her memorial in my hometown. And then we went to the city for her funeral at her, both her memorial and her funeral. I spoke with little to no emotion. I spoke about my grandmother. I was very calm, cool, and collected, which was quite surprising to everyone considering that I was only 10. However, we went to my aunt Patricia's afterwards for the wake and someone told an anecdotal story about my grandmother that was, you know, kind of a ha ha funny, but not, not the kind of like guffawing funny. Right. And after that story, I just started to laugh uncontrollably to the point of hysteria. And I continued laughing like that for 45 minutes. That's interesting. I never once cried after my grandmother passed away. Well, and I mean, that's again, I wonder if I'm even going to cry I, because. I mean, I I had a similar experience because I delivered a eulogy at her funeral and I spoke lovingly of my grandmother and I told some funny anecdotes and that kind of thing. And I had moments at the funeral where I would almost feel myself coming to tears because I feel like an intense wave of melancholy and then it would pass and then I'd feel happy and at peace and then it would pass and it would just come in waves well, of course. And I do believe that that is actually more the way that people with neurodivergencies, specifically ADHD, grieve. 
because one of the things that happens is we don't necessarily think in a very linear pattern. We think in waves or fireworks, which is how I describe it, kind of bursts of random thought. So throughout the grieving process, our process never really stops. That is true. Um, Because I don't know about you, but I know for myself, I very much have this kind of out of sight, out of mind. It's very much object permanence with me. Well, and it's interesting you say that because then I started to wonder, is the reason I'm not grieving as much because my grandma doesn't live in the same town that I live in, so I haven't seen her in a while. So is there an element of object impermanence to this? And I mm-hmm. may feel like a horrible person saying that, but... Well, no, because what I think will happen, I know what happens with me. For instance, my father passed away when I was five years old. Yeah. And I don't have a ton of memory of him because, again, I was five years old and I have the memory of a goldfish to begin with. (laughs) So, But every once in a while, something will happen even, you know, 27 years after his death that will just so strongly connect me to the memory of my father, this emotional connection that after this many years... I still am brought to tears sometimes simply by sitting on a swing because that's something that my father and I did together. Sometimes I see a blue jay, which to me is a representation of him. Yeah. And it moves me to tears. And people will say, you know, it's it's been so long. And you you are very open about the fact that you don't have a lot of memories of him. I'm like, yes, but it it brings that grief back. Do I feel it every moment of every day? No, I don't feel anything every moment of every day. But in this moment, I am brought back to this person, to this love. And that's kind of how it it comes out. And I grieve that way for anyone that I've lost. I mean, honestly, I get that because like my Nona Olga, which for the listeners out there who are not Italian, Nona means grandmother in Italian. So my grandma on my dad's side my Italian side, passed away in 2010. She was like a third mother to me in a lot of ways. So I had a very close relationship with her too. And I still find myself, despite it being over a decade, mourning her and sometimes talking to her and that kind of thing. And I'm a pagan atheist. I don't necessarily know what I think about whether there's life on the other side. But I still find it comforting to talk to her. And sometimes I just feel the need to. So I think you're right. I think it definitely comes in waves. Absolutely. Um, I lost my other grandmother when I was 18. Um, it was a fairly traumatic series of events. Grandma was 88. Again, <laughs> both of my grandmothers passed away at 88. Um, and sometimes still, I, I very often find myself talking, especially because this grandmother was in my life I got to grow up with this grandmother so much more. And we had such a deep spiritual connection. She was not only my grandmother, but she was one of my dearest friends. Yeah. And I still find myself speaking to her, sometimes even asking her for advice. Um, I was in a rather serious car accident in 2015, I want to say. So grandma would have been gone quite a while by then and I would swear to you that that she was there with me 
And I felt her so her presence so strongly within that vehicle that I almost had to look around for her afterwards. Now, I don't know if that was part of my grief, if it was a fear at being in a major collision or what it was. Yeah. But then I had this moment of grief that I couldn't that I couldn't just tell her that I was okay. Yeah, I get that. And so, like you said, it does kind of come in waves and it might be, I believe sometimes something scary, something simple that just brings that memory, that grief to the forefront of everything about myself. And I don't know if that is linked to our object permanence. I don't know if it's linked to our um, more spiritual sides because both of us are pagan. Well, you're pagan atheist and I'm pagan. I don't know. And um, I don't know what it's linked to, but I have always found, and anyone else that I know that has um, ADHD is some kind of neurodivergency, kind of has that same grief process where, of course, when it happens, it hurts, but maybe we don't cry. Maybe we don't mourn as long as other people do in that first, you know, kind of the, the aftermath. But then we find ourselves weeks, months, years down the line having those moments of such intense grief that it's like it just happened. Well, yeah, and actually, you made me think of something with that. I mean, I don't know about you, but and I think this is a neurodivergent thing in general, whether it be autism or ADHD or what have you. Um, I associate moments of my life with things that I'm into and people that I'm talking to and pop culture shows that I'm into and video games and all that kind of thing. I kind of associate my life and moments in my life with that. And that's kind of how I track it or I, you know, assign meaning in my brain. It's weird, but I just thought of something because my grandma is the one who got me, who basically taught me how to be a a good civic citizen, how to be involved in politics, how to have a sense of civic duty, all that stuff, because that was very big for her. She was a card-carrying member of the Liberal Party of Canada, so we didn't agree because <laughs> for anyone who's Canadian listening to this show, I am firmly in the New Democratic Party camp when it comes to that. But I digress. The fact that I want to be involved at all and that I go to and I go to an effort to do that and I do even things like this podcast, I try to make a difference. I try to do stuff like that. It, in some ways, I owe that to my grandma and to my mom because she always taught me to kind of always fight for what you believe in but my grandma also taught me that so I'm thinking maybe there are going to be times where my brain associates the two and I maybe not cry while doing it but feel a greater sense of need to do it and pride in doing it because grandma would be proud absolutely and I think that is really a beautiful point because I think everybody uh whether we're neurospicy or neurotypical I think that we do associate people with a particular moment in our lives or something that we do, like I said, with my father, um, I tend very much to associate being on a swing set with my father. Yeah. Because when I was a little girl, he would take me for walks and we would undoubtedly stop at a park. And I always wanted to go on the swings. And um, he would always, always push me on the swings. It it did not matter if he was tired. Sorry. (laughs) See, I told you it comes. It's in waves. <laughs> um, Are you okay? Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. It, it was just one of those moments of, like I said, the, the grief yeah, that 
that just shows up even, you know, sometimes, and you and I have spoken about my father many times and it's never done anything. But at this particular moment, apparently I'm going to uh, weep in public. (laughs) Um, But so, like I was saying, um, I, I have never since the day my father passed away, I am not able to swing on a swing set without thinking of him. Yeah. So I do think that we tie certain things to certain people. And it's beautiful because for the rest of your life, it's kind of, um, I don't know if you've seen, um, what is it called in the movie? I think it's called Inside. Inside, Inside Out? Out? Yes. I love it. So me too. Um, but with some of those, you know, it's like a core memory has been created. Yes. And I feel like sometimes society teaches us that, well, someone died, you should be sad. And of course, you should absolutely be sad. But there's a different way always to be sad. You can be sad that you'll no longer see them, but still also feel such an amazing joy at the things that they've taught you of the life that they led of all of these things. So I think grief is just this kind of mush ball of emotion. And I don't think it matters too much how you how embody you it. it, how you embody it as long as you do kind of, I guess. Yes, absolutely. I don't think there's one way to grieve. No, and it's interesting because, and I'm going to plug one of my favorite uh, neurodiversity pages after this, uh, Neuroclastic, which is a essentially an online journal written by and for autistic people in the neurodiversity community. And they did they had a they had a thing by uh, one of the one of the authors on the page about autism and grief, and how autistic grief is different than neurotypical grief because. In some ways, uh, the author words it as it's all about me and how you're in your own head processing it. It looks selfish, but it's not because that's how your brain processes it. And I kind of agree. Like it's that doesn't fully reflect my experience because I think again, even though I'm autistic, everyone's experience of life is still different. But I kind of feel that in a way because I've been very much in my own head about a lot of things over the last couple of days because of this. Absolutely. So. Um. So yeah, I don't know. I, oh, I my I am so sorry. My train of thought is just on a runaway track today. I, <laughs> um, no, I I absolutely get what you're saying. Where grief is intensely personal. Yeah, it, exactly. It, it is. No one grieves the same way. Um, some people have to curl up in a ball and and cry until until they don't have to cry anymore some people have to desperately take care of everyone around them you know give them something to do keep them busy so they have to take care of people they have to drink or use substances they everybody grieves in their own way and one of the things that I have to say that I absolutely hate is when you hear someone say, oh, it happened so long ago, shouldn't you be over it? By oh, now? my God, no. No. That pisses me off so much. Me too. And especially because of the way I grieve, it's like I will never, I don't want to say I will never truly be over it. But in the grand scheme of things, as dramatic as that sounds, I will never truly be over the passing of someone that I loved. 
or love. Yeah, and you I, know, it absolutely. And, and, and I think people who say that also don't take into account the fact that that's not how grieving works and it's not how trauma works either. Like you don't just get over something bad that happened to you. You learn strategies to move on. You kind of process it in your brain, whatever. But if it was traumatic enough, whether it be like something horrible that happened to you or a relative passing or anything like that, you need to go through the motions in your own time in your own way. And look, now I feel like a hypocrite because I should be following my own advice, but, <laughs> but you have to, you know what I mean? Well, and I think part of grief is learning how to build your life around the piece that, that is no longer there. Yeah. So you have to, you have to continue on. You still have to live. You cannot, because we're talking about death in this case, you can't crawl into the grave with someone that you've lost. No. So grieving is a lot of finding ways to work around this hole that's left in your life. Yeah. And I think that a lot of neurotypical people kind of just build a bridge and walk across. Whereas myself or our other neurodivergent counterparts, we sort of create a trail around it if that makes sense it does and you know also i mean you saying the building the bridge and walking across it thing i think the other difference is for a neurotypical building a bridge is one task whereas for someone with adhd or autism or whatnot or executive dysfunction in general every pulling out every individual plank is a task figure out how they put it together is a task engineering the bridge is a task testing it is a task all of this stuff And this is all a metaphor for the stages of grief are things we think more about and face differently and don't just have as simple a solution to as, well, you just move on. Exactly. And I do find, as you're saying, with everything is its own individual task, you know, I'm thinking about the many deaths that I have kind of navigated and lived through, excuse me, within my life. And it's always you know, this person has passed and they they did this and this and this in my life. And I did this and this and this and theirs. Yeah. And now I have to figure out how to do those things without them. Yeah. You know, and so you sometimes find, maybe sometimes you never do that particular activity again, maybe that one's done, or you find other people and that will do this activity with you or help you with, but again, that's still a lot of um, reaching out. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but I know for me, and you know this about me, and now our listeners will know this about me. I, I don't ask for the help. <laughs> really? I had no idea. <laughs> um, I, I don't, I'm not great at asking for help. I can do it all on my own. And in reality, that isn't true. But so it's it's finding this way to navigate around this massive loss, this gaping hole in your life. And it doesn't matter if they were like in the case of your grandmother, where maybe you didn't talk every day and you didn't live in the same city. You knew if you needed to, you could always call your grandma. Yeah, exactly. And and I wanted to touch on something you said earlier, where you said you have complicated feelings in the regards to the fact that your grandmother was a good grandmother and not necessarily a great mom. Yeah. I think 
there comes a point where you almost have to divorce the two where you can love your grandmother for the aspect of the fact that she was a great grandmother to you and also understand that, you know, she wasn't a great mom, but maybe because she wasn't always a great mom, she learned from her mistakes, or I don't know if you want to phrase it as mistakes, but she learned from what she did as a mom and knew that she didn't want to repeat those patterns. Yeah, no. And, and I, and I want to hesitate there too, in a way, because part of me doesn't want to, you know, justify, oh, it's okay if someone was a jerk here because they, you know, because uh, all of this, 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 if they, you know, trauma is a complicated thing and I don't want to cheapen that, but I, I but I do agree with what you're saying. I think different people can have different kinds of relationships with people in different ways. Absolutely. And it doesn't mean that you're giving them a free pass. No. Or anything that they did, did or didn't do. I'm really not sure how to phrase this. My, no, no, I, I, my, I, think, I think I've got what you're saying, and I agree. Yeah. My brain is working far faster than my mouth. <laughs> oh, I know that feeling. But I mean, like, yeah, no, you're 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 absolutely right about that. And I, I mean, I've always had a good relationship with her, and I mean, it's it was different than my other grandmother because, or my even my aunt Judy because my grandma, my nona Olga rather, and my aunt Judy were both very loving people and warm and that kind of thing. My grandma was a different kind of person than that. So maybe that's why I'm grieving weirdly too. I mean, it absolutely could be. I think it depends on the person that you're grieving, the relationship that you're grieving. It, it really does depend. Well, and I think, I think we grieve much as we have, and here, here's a lesson for the viewer, the viewers, the, the, the listeners out there. If you're at all familiar with the concept with polyamory and that kind of thing, then you know the idea that you can have a different kind of love and a different kind of relationship and a different kind of connection with different partners. And they're all valid and they're all equal, but they're all different. This same philosophy applies to literally every relationship we have in life and even how we grieve our people. Because if you had a different connection with them in life, odds are you're going to grieve them differently at death. Absolutely. And I think too... That potentially we don't put enough significance on that. No, I don't think so either. You know, we go, hey, your grandmother died. You should be crying. Why aren't you crying right now? What's the matter with you? Yeah. Well, but nobody takes into account, like your grandmother was just shy of her 101st birthday, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. She turns, well, she, her birthday was February 14th of every year. Right. Oh, she's a Valentine's Day baby. Yeah. Nice. Um. But what I was going for with that is that at that age, we're all aware that we are not immortal. Right. And I think you've probably had a lot of time. I believe also your grandmother was in a home. Yes. Yes. So you've had, and not that that makes it easier to say goodbye, but you have kind of had time to mourn and also celebrate. So that might be one of the reasons too that you find that you are grieving differently in this process is that it wasn't sudden and unexpected it wasn't a short-lived illness it wasn't traumatic in it, it is always traumatic to lose someone but it wasn't traumatic in the sense that it it just happened um much like losing our beloved betty white you kind of know that at a certain point that it is inevitable and they have had a long and wonderful life. Yes. It doesn't mean you want to say goodbye, 
but it's also hard to cry over someone who has lived this truly amazing life, even though you'll miss them, you almost feel more like you should celebrate yes. this kind of goal that very few people truly get a chance to reach. Well, and to be honest, I think that's part of the reason why I'm feeling the way I'm feeling. Because, how do I word this? What's like you said, she lived to just a month shy of her 101st birthday. I made the analogy earlier talking to my mom um, that I feel a little bit like how Bilbo Baggins feels at the end of the the first book of The Hobbit. Like The Hobbit, not the Lord of the Rings books, The Hobbit. Because The Hobbit's the only Lord of the Rings book I've ever been able to read through to completion. Do not judge me out there, internet land. (laughs) I'm sorry. I love Lord of the Rings. You got through one. I have never read a single Lord of the Rings book. The Hobbit was one of my favorite books as a kid because my dad read it to me a lot too. Please don't take my nerd card. I have no, I, I don't. Read them. And I barely made it through the movies. Don't, don't worry. The, the internet might judge us for this. You better not internet, but I will. <laughs> <This is a laughs> Especially if you're judging us, no? <laughs> yeah, yeah, come on now, come on now. I could do, we could do a whole episode on gatekeeping too, you know, for all you out there who are going to judge us, but no, I'm just kidding. Um, but no, there's a, there's a part at the end where, like, I always kind of feel as, like, there's a scene at the end where Bilbo is returning to the Shire after the adventure. And there's this sense of, like, peace and completion and a journey is over and a chapter is ended. And he's changed and become wiser for the experience, but it's over. And that's kind of been how I've been feeling about this. Like, I'm not grieving and crying in the sense of, you know, the traditional sense, because as you said, she had a long life and she, had, she did a lot of, she, of the things she wanted to do. So I feel more a sense of peace and completion in a weird way and melancholy. Well, and I think that's really beautiful. Yeah. You know, they, they, you, yes, because you can look and you can kind of say you, you did it. You, yeah. you know, there's this wonderful sense of almost awe yeah exactly. when you think about when your grandmother was born and all of the things that she has seen the advances in everything in every aspect of the world the world that she was born into no longer exists well for perspective for our listeners she was literally born in 1921 which is the tail end of another pandemic you know what i mean so like yeah you're right. She has seen like the world she was born into no longer exists and she saw it all change. I, I, as a, as a futurist and a sci-fi fan, I want to live that long to see the things that happen in our world. And and it also must be beautiful for you as a historian. Yes. Because literally your grandmother, and it's almost and I feel this way very much about my grandmother that I was very, I, I was well, 10 when, when grandma Mabel passed and 18 when grandma Vi passed and yeah. both ages were kind of at that age where I was very precocious. I'm sure no one could tell. Really? You <laughs> really? But you know, it's not at, at 10 years old, at 18 years old, you're not sitting there being like, Oh, grandma, tell me about the horse and buggy that brought no. your milk. That's right. But I wish very much that younger me had been that way because the stories that they could have told us, our experiences 
that we will never live. Yeah. And in that sense, I tend to grieve my grandmother in a sense that I wish I knew more of her stories so I could pass them on. Um, my my grandma Helmke, so my my mother's mom, had seven children, and umpteen um, umpteen uh, grandchildren, and even more great grandchildren. There's a lot of people to carry down her story. However, yeah. my grandma Bai. Um, which is a, a complicated family relation and I'm not going to get into it, but my grandma Vi only had um, one son right. who, who is my uncle, which makes it sound. So my grandmother was actually my mother's best friend and oh, that's how we became, you know, uh, grand, like granddaughter, grandmother. There is no one else from my grandmother's line that can carry down her stories because unfortunately her only son was in a um, was in a very horrible car accident when he was 21 and he was left with severe brain damage and he will never be able to pass on her stories. Yeah, which is sad. It is. And I grieve, I grieve for the loss of what her life was. I know what you mean. Uh, I, I actually was having this, this thought like around the time that the pandemic started and it hit me. I thought to myself, wow, this is going to be one of those events that when we're old people, we're going to be telling the youngins about, you know, and, and you tying that back to my grandma and your grandma and how, you know, they've been through so many of these events. I do wish I had asked her more too growing up. I do. Absolutely. And if anything, this conversation has put me in kind of a mind frame where I, like I've said, I was born into an older family. My mother is 75 years old. Uh, all of my aunts and uncles are in now their eighties, except for my mom and her one younger sister who is in her early seventies. Yeah. And now I feel like I desperately need to reach out to them. Although we are already very, we're a very close knit family, but now I want to reach out to them and say, tell me your stories. Yeah. Tell me your stories so that they can live on through me. I know what you mean. Yeah. Because yes. it, it'll be different when we're older because we have had, we were born into the digital age. But you know, despite that, I actually think, and maybe this is just, maybe this is my pagan side or my historian side or both, but I think there's something special about stories. And the preservation of stories. Yeah, we ha- we were born into the digital age. We are going to have like my Facebook wall posts are going to exist forever on the internet, and so will yours. Oh, um, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> Why? Why? I'm sorry. I know. I know. I'm sorry. And that is actually where I was going with that. So I'm glad that you kind of um, picked up on oh, what yeah. I was laying down. But because it- I think, yeah, and and you know what, and. I don't want, I, when I say this, I'm not trying to culturally appropriate and I don't, I'm trying to be very sensitive when I say this, but one thing about a lot of indigenous cultures and communities and that kind of thing is that oral history is so important. And I think that's a lesson that we should, we should all learn because yeah, we have the digital records and yeah, we have the physical hard copies of things and yeah, we have all these tangible proofs and things that belong to people in the past, but our stories are what make us human. 
Absolutely. And I think too, on a personal level, there's a difference of hearing a story about your grandmother told by your grandmother or your aunt, your uncle, your mom, your cousin twice removed. Then there is just about hearing someone's historical retelling of something. Yes. So I always, sorry. No, you go ahead. You go ahead. (laughs) My stepfather growing up, he and his parents uh, immigrated from Germany to Canada. Yeah. And uh, so my Oma and Opa, they had this beautiful love story. And I had the privilege of hearing it from them. Oh, that's amazing. And I think it's so different to hear a love story or any kind of story like that yeah. directly from the people than just hearing, you know, oh, yeah, you know, the, <laughs> the Hamans came over on the boat and they fell in love. Mm. And, you know, Opa, your Opa was really persistent about marrying your Oma. I got to hear, you know, what Oma was thinking and what Opa was thinking and, yeah. you know, how it came about and how he made her heart flutter just so. And in my heart of hearts, I can hear her beautiful, soft Germanic accent telling me this story. I know the feeling. And I think that means so much more than just reading about you know, the people, and, and in this case, they, they were escaping Hitler's youth movement. Yeah. And so it's, it's amazing to hear the beautiful things that came out of such a horrific time in history, that even when things were terrifying and, and cruel and unfair, that there were these little pocket moments. Yeah. And, and just kind of getting to hear that kind of restores the little bit of faith in humanity that I have left. <laughs> doesn't it, doesn't it though? No, I, I know what you mean because um, one of the things that like, okay, on my dad's side, I had a very similar experience to you. Uh, before my Nona passed away, she had Alzheimer's. So at, towards the end, I ended up staying with her when my ZNZO were out of town and I would take care of her and all that stuff. And she told me the story of how she met my Nono Renzo and fell in love with him and all that stuff and how they emigrated to Canada. And it was just, it was beautiful. And so at my old job, when I had an opportunity to go to Halifax, Nova Scotia, which is in the case of our international viewers or viewers, listeners, I keep saying viewers, Halifax Harbor is where a lot of immigrants came over from overseas to Canada. It's like in the States, it was New York Harbor in Canada was Halifax Harbor. So when I was out there, I made a point of going to the pier 21. I think it's pier 21 or pier 19, or I forget what pier it is, but they have a museum there now. And I went, I made a point of going there to stand on the pier that my family would have come off of from Italy. And it was such a powerful moment because I just had this moment of realization that everything that I am started here. And I, continuing that, one of the ways that I've mourned my Nona Olga and cherished her memory has been, I, I have her travel chest that she came over from Italy with. And I use it as my coffee table, but I keep it as a souvenir and a reminder of my Nona. And it's kind of how I continue to mourn her. So going back to what you said before, grief takes different state, it takes different forms, but I think we do it all of our lives. I believe so, because um, like you were saying, you kept your Nona's 
um, travel chest, I kept my grandma Vi's hope chest. Yeah. And so when we were emptying out her house, I found the hope chest in the basement and I said, I refuse to leave this house without this chest. And I didn't open it. I just didn't, I couldn't, you know? Yeah. And um, I took it home and I opened it and it smelled like mothballs and grandma. (laughs) Naturally, as it should. And, you know, I was going through it and there's all sorts of old things. There's an old newspaper. There's an old Christmas stocking that was my Uncle Jim's. And in the very bottom, I find the most magical piece of treasure that I have ever found. It is a book that is hand wrapped in, it looks like butcher's paper. And it is a book and it is the Carol of the Birds. And it was a gift to my grandmother from her uncle in 1927. Oh, that's beautiful. She would have been, I want to say, eight years old-ish at the time. Oh my God, that's amazing. And I keep, I, I will not, one day what I will do is I will find another copy of this book and read it. I've never read it. The only thing I ever did was open the front cover to see the inscription, you know, Merry Christmas, Vi, love uncle someone. I don't remember offhand. Uncle and, someone and, is rolling in his grave right now thinking about you. I'm sorry, uncle someone. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, you know, with the numbers 1927. Aww. And I keep that in my china cabinet as well. I also have her hope chest still. And just holding that book brings me this wonderful memory of my grandmother, that this was something that she carried with her her entire life. Yeah. And now I have it. And one day I will pass it down, hopefully, to, you know, probably my child's eye. But it's just this, this living thing. And again, it's one of those things where it's stories endure. Yep. Because not only is this a a story that I can tell of how I got this book, but it is a book. (laughs) And it's just this magical way of keeping someone with us even after they've passed. Well, absolutely. And I think that's beautiful. I just want to say that that is beautiful that you have that because not a lot of people can say that they have such a relic, but that's amazing. Um, I, one of the things that I took or was given or was offered after the funeral um, this week, my, it wasn't my grandma's because my grandma was more math brain. She wasn't, she was not an artist, but her mom, my great grandma, my great grandma Maud was an artist and she painted beautiful nature scenes. And my grandma treasured this painting that was her mom's. And now I, I'm going to put it up in my apartment. I'm going to have it as a reminder. That is wonderful. So, yeah. I mean, maybe this is an ADHD impermanence, like object impermanence thing, but I like having tangible reminders of the people that I love and lost. I am exactly the same way. And I I do have this feeling that a lot of neurodivergent people are not that I want to stereotype us, but it's nice to have that, that concrete evidence that they were here. here. Yeah. This person was here. They were a part of my life. They mattered to me. Yeah. And I think that is 
is a beautiful thing. And like you said, along with the stories that we get to tell, because that is the way that society has endured. Yep. We tell our stories, we continue our stories. And I am, maybe it's because I'm a writer and a storyteller that I believe that stories make the world go round. I agree. I'm the same, but then again, I'm a writer and a storyteller as well. So I totally agree with you on that. Actually, I mean, if you think about it, the earliest human civilizations had to tell stories in terms of where they found good hunting ground, where they found food uh, to scavenge, you know, all these things. Human beings are natural storytellers. It's how we order our world. So yes, I completely agree with you. All of this to say, like, I think you're right. I think neurodivergent people do grieve differently. And I think- No, I, I- Sorry, go on. I was going to say, we we absolutely do. And again, this has been more of a anecdotal therapeutic session than maybe informational. We're going to have but a lot have, more informational sessions. Don't worry. <laughs> oh, yeah. But we have, I, I have done quite a lot of reading and spent a lot of time, you know, listening to uh, Katie Soros and Eric. Of course, I listened to both of them on TikTok and their amazing podcast. And they have some great information. And, you know, Katie has done a lot of research on the fact that we do, as neurodivergent people, grieve differently. Yeah. And personally, I think that's beautiful. And I don't think it really matters too much what your neurospiciness might be, whether you're ADHD, autistic, uh, have depression, anxiety, uh, PTSD or CPTSD or any other neurodivergent neurodivergency that I just can't come up with the name with right now, because as we've seen, my train of thought is not awesome today. I think we all grieve differently. We grieve in our own way. And I think that's beautiful because we are different Absolutely, in the best and most beautiful way. Absolutely. I mean, I think I'm going to do my typical thing and bring a Star Trek reference into this and you're going to groan, but I'm, I, it's poignant and I have a reason for it. I would never groan at your Star Trek references. How uh-huh. You? Uh-huh. <laughs> I love you. Don't, don't judge me. I'm not judging. <laughs> okay. So there is a saying that I think it's in universe, it's the Vulcans who say this, but it's a, it's a philosophy that I really like. It's infinite diversity in infinite combinations. Basically, we are all different. The universe is made up of a bajillion different interlocking pieces. And there's beauty in that difference. And I think that extends to grieving and neurodiversity and all of these things too, because I don't think there's any one right way to grieve or to feel your feelings or to not feel your feelings if you don't, you know, like there's no one right way to be human. And I think, I mean, I have to keep reminding myself of this because for all, as good as I sound on this podcast, I've been beating myself up for not feeling the way I should feel on this. But I think everyone's going to feel differently with things. And I think there's no one right way to feel, to feel grief and to go through this process and to do anything. And I think that's okay. It is okay to feel your feelings differently and to grieve differently for different people, for different situations, for different neurotypes, for all of the above. Absolutely. I mean, when it all comes down to it, we are meat mechs powered by stardust. (laughs) Right. I don't think that we are 
programmed to all think exactly alike, whether we be neurospicy, whether we be neurotypical, whether we be anything at all. It's our differences that make us beautiful. Exactly. It's our differences that get us through the day on this weird rock that's spinning through nothing. And I mean, you really have to think about, like you said, we are meat sacks powered by tapioca pudding and star, sentient tapioca pudding and stardust on a rock hurtling through the cosmos in a small, insignificant backward section of one of bajillions of galaxies. You have to admire the fact that in all of that, we are all unique and individual. Absolutely. And I know that I'm going to get some groans here and especially, but at this point I am taking back the phrase, we are all snowflakes. Yep. And I mean that in the best sense where every single one of us, no matter what our similarities are, and of course there are similarities, we are all uniquely, beautifully, tragically different. Yeah. And I think that's beautiful. And I think that is something that we need to remember when we feel like I'm not grieving the right way. I don't think the right way. I don't this the right way. There is no right way. <laughs> exactly. There's our way. And as long as your way doesn't hurt anyone else. Or yourself. Or yourself. Don't hurt yourself. Then you are doing exactly what you are supposed to do. If your grieving means that in the middle of the night, you have to sneak outside and howl at the moon, then you sneak outside and you howl at the moon. That sounds like fun. I want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and for anyone who might be listening, if you are grieving, whether it be the loss of, of someone on our kind of mortal coil here, if it's a relationship, if it's a job, if it's anything. Life path, anything. Anything. Uh, a ma massive change in your life. It could be anything that you are mourning or grieving. Don't be afraid to reach out to the people who love you. And honestly, if you feel like you have nobody that loves you, don't be afraid even, I would go as far to say to reach out to one of us. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to send an email at some point. So we that's perfectly fine. Yes. Um, but grieving is such a personal and painful journey, but you don't have to do it alone. That's right. And a lot of times at the other end of a grieving period is a beautiful period of rebirth and a new opportunity. And, you know, it's worth it, All of us deserve that. Absolutely. And um, I think very much when we feel this kind of emotional pain, we need to look at the example that our planet, that the earth sets for us. And that is with any loss, any death, anything like that, there is rebirth. Yeah. So again, just to make myself sound super philosophical and all of these things, there cannot be light without darkness. There cannot be happiness without sadness. And there cannot be life without death. You know, and it's... <laughs> no, go on. Sorry. 
I was going to say, and it's just something, no matter how much it hurts, you, you have to go through and just live your life to the fullest. And I think that way is the best way to grieve and to remember and to celebrate the people that we love that we have lost is just by living in a world that they helped create for us. I think that's beautiful. I really do. And thank you for reminding me why I identify as pagan, because to be honest, that whole idea, I mean, okay, pagan and atheist, because there's a whole idea that when that when we die, we rejoin the universe, which is a which is a core pagan tenet. But it's also a core scientific and rationalist tenet because we don't know what happens with your consciousness necessarily, but on a tangible level, everything that you are physically gets recycled back into the universe and becomes one with the universe again. I find that a beautiful idea that nothing is ever truly gone. Nothing is ever truly lost. Right, and that's a whole segment that we can get into at another time because Absolutely. I do have a lot of thought kind of in that vein so do um and it a very very long episode if we try to incorporate all of it absolutely but no nice I, say. yes absolutely and i i 100 agree with you um i am also pagan and i also believe in many things i i definitely believe that we are never gone i don't know if that means that you know there's a series of multiple universes where we all exist kind of here and there. I don't know if that means that we go somewhere else. I don't know if it means that we come back. I don't know if it means that we stay. Yep. But I do know that the people that we love are always here, no matter what. And if nothing else, we survive in the memories of the people who loved us. Absolutely. And with that, I think we should probably end this episode. <laughs> I think we should because you and I will just keep talking. Oh, yeah. Talk, 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 talk. Uh, thank you all for joining us on this one. I'm sorry it was a bit more of a downer than our first episode, but I thought it was an important one, all things considered. So, No, I, I think it was a very important one. It was something that needed to be talked about, especially in light of losing your grandmother. Um, but I think we still managed or at least try to keep it as happy as we could considering the circumstances. Absolutely. And, and honestly, I, I'm appreciative and grateful for the fact that we did this. It actually helped me quite a bit too. And I hope it helps a bunch of you guys out there who are listening to this. Hopefully, wherever you're at right now, if you are listening to this and resonating with it, um, I feel you and you know, I'm, I'm with you. So yeah. Um, just a bit of just one thing of note before we wrap it up we are officially on apple podcasts google podcasts spotify and anchor.fm anchors our host uh we'd very much like to be sponsored by anchor so yeah please uh you know be nice if you sponsored us but as it stands right now they're just one of the places we host our podcast on (laughs) um and also if you haven't been able to tell katie and eric we're huge fans please follow us absolutely um we actually learned about anchor from katie and eric's podcast and we are thrilled with their services um but like adam said we're very grateful that you've come back to listen to us um that you came on this journey with us and hopefully if you are having kind of a hard time with grief 
that you understand, not that you understand, but that you know that even if we don't know you, we love you, we accept you and reach out to someone that you can talk to because you absolutely do not have to do this alone. And you are worth it and you are loved and you are valid. Absolutely. So with that, thanks for tuning in, uh, everyone. And I don't know what our publishing cycle is going to be like still. We're still figuring all that out, but stay tuned for the next one. Thanks for listening, guys. Special shout out to the band She and Him behind the awesome Why Do You Let Me Stay Here, which is the basis of the intro and outro of this podcast. And to all of you out there in interwebs land, thank you for following us. Like and subscribe. The Neurodivergent Polyamorist was produced by Rebecca Kelterborn and Adam Mardero. Copyright 2021.